0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: My name is Zach Twomley, and you're about to listen to the latest episode of, as I was about to say, The Delegation Game. It's not the latest episode of The Delegation Game, but that episode is out today as well. In fact, I almost forgot that this episode existed for the Versailles Anniversary Project because... Over the last few days, my head has been so deep in the delegation game. There is so much going on with it. All these people that I added to a special group on Facebook, they all set up their own little messengers, and they've been making schemes and plots and everything, and it's amazing. It's so great to see, and it makes me so happy. I've never been so busy before, and my brain's kind of melted, so let's hope this episode goes well. If not, oh well. I'm sure it will be fine. This is a pretty momentous day, guys, because 100 years ago today, the Paris Peace Conference opened, and everything which came from the Paris Peace Conference began on this day a century ago. It's pretty much the beginning of our project, except it's not, of course, because we've been doing it for a good while. And maybe some other podcasters would start on this day, but I started earlier because I know you guys love the detail that I bring to the table, and I'm able to bring it to the table because you supported me so well. When Diplomacy Fails is and has always been... A listener-supported podcast. We are singing or swimming on the basis of the support we get. And because you guys support this podcast so well, we are all the time swimming. So I'd like to thank you so much for that. And I'd also like to say, yeah, there's so much great stuff to come. And every single bit of it is made possible. Because I have the time to work on this project and this podcast like never before. The Patreon has shot up in the last few weeks, thanks mostly to the delegation game, but also because you guys are really engaging really well with what we're putting out, and I really love that. It's so great to see. It's incredible this has all come together so well, because I've been planning it for so long, so when things work out, that makes me very, very happy indeed. Speaking of things working out, I think we should just get right into the Versailles Anniversary Project latest episode. Of course, guys, if you'd like to help support this show without sending money my way, all you have to do is tell someone. Tell them that on this day, 100 years ago, the Power Speech Conference opened, and when they say, what's that, say, have you ever heard of the Treaty of Versailles? And when they say, oh yeah, that's the thing that caused World War II, you say, no sir, it's not that simple. Listen to the Versailles anniversary project, and next thing you know, a history friend is born. Alrighty guys, it's just that simple, and so is listening in, as we take you to the latest episode. miles from home an American army is fighting for you to the end that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth I earnestly entreat my countrymen
0: to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary change.
1: Which may well be irretrievable.
0: I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy between them have made waste people in CDMSI and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest. because we're
1: You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 24. Today is the 18th of January 2019, and on this day in history, 100 years ago, occurred the following events. We know it as the Paris Peace Conference, but from January to March, the official title of this formidable gathering of allied nations was the Preliminary Conference of Peace. Every power that could conceivably have been said to have opposed the Central Powers was represented, from Siam to China to Brazil to the Dominions, for a total of 29 delegations of varying size and representation, and all of them expected to take part in this conference. It is estimated that at least 10,000 people from all over the world filled up the French capital for the conferences, a fact which helps us explain why Paris was chosen in the first place. A very simple reason, really. Not only had the Supreme War Council met regularly nearby at Versailles for several months before, but Paris, it was believed, was the only city actually capable of hosting such an event. Paris, although it was shattered and exhausted, it still contained the infrastructure, which was the envy of other cities, not to mention the accommodation. As we have seen, the British were able to squeeze in around the Arc de Triomphe, but the Americans also brought as many as 1,300 personnel, and few cities existed in the world that could cope with this strain. Strain can be seen as something of a byword for the Paris Peace Conference, but on this day 100 years ago, optimism was in plentiful supply. The Quai d'Orsay, France's foreign ministry, was the fabulously adorned headquarters of the conference, at least for a time. But the private apartments of Edward House and the American President were also known to have been used. The inner sanctum of the Quai d'Orsay contained the room of Stephen Pichon, France's foreign minister and this was where the Council of Ten, also known as the Supreme Council, generally sat. Today, one can get a feel for the place relatively easy, as the building remains intact and true to its original form with some minor alterations. The painting job was much darker in 1919 than the lighter, modern paint job suggests, but the carved wooden panelling and the glorious 17th century tapestries remain the same. The room still contains an enormous fireplace, it still gets very hot when several people sit within it, and it still opens onto a lovely rose garden with thick curtains on hand to block out the light or to mark the end of the day. For the last week, the British, French, Americans, Italians and Japanese had met here in this room. They had worked through all manner of issues and mostly concerned themselves with questions of representation, the size of delegations, procedure and what to do about Russia. What order were the issues to be discussed in? Well, Woodrow Wilson didn't want an ordered list. He wanted conversation among the delegations so they wouldn't feel dictated to. Lloyd George and George Clemenceau both believed this would create a never ending event that produced nothing. George Clemenceau wanted French to supersede English, but he eventually settled for French equality with English after some Anglo American prodding. Concern was rife among the delegations that they would become overwhelmed by the sheer amount of petitions made or issues at stake. So a compromise was suggested. Only states that had an active interest in the matter were required to sit on its relevant commission. These commissions, sometimes referred to interchangeably as committees, but not always, just because, would make the recommendations which the Supreme Council would then discuss. From the 20th of January to the 14th of February 1919, before Woodrow Wilson went back to America that is, the Supreme Council, or Council of Ten, functioned in this manner. The tons of paperwork which the French Study Committee, the British Special Inquiry, and the American Inquiry created were barely if ever referenced or consulted, weirdly enough. There was far too much reading to be done, and that was what the technical advisers were for in any case. The national leaders make great use of informed people rather than reports numbering in the hundreds of pages. In their defence, they simply didn't have time to sift through so much paperwork, but we should not imagine that they were uninformed because of that. Technical advisers were already coming to the fore as a bone of contention for some, where it was disputed how many each would be allowed to have, the idea being that the more brains one had access to in a specific subject, the greater the advantage he would have but that too many people standing behind you and whispering in your ear would also, at the same time, greatly slow the pace of things. Something which we have certainly noticed from the previous episode is that the Supreme War Council, which was separate from the Supreme Council, met several times a day. On the 12th of January, for instance, three meetings were held, normally interrupted by a short recess or declaration that someone needed to reflect on what had been discussed. Diplomatic speak for... I'm offended and you should all know how offended I am. The terminology can be confusing. I mean, are we talking about a council or a committee or a commission? It's often hard to say and it doesn't always seem clear whether the people that were actually sitting at this given body or that knew which body they were sitting at. But the best way to imagine the different councils the Allies created is to view them as stages in the peace process. The Supreme War Council was responsible for the armistice and clung on until the preliminary peace conference opened, whereupon the Supreme War Council transferred most of its responsibilities for doing stuff to the Supreme Council. The Supreme Council was interchangeably known as the Council of Ten, at least until late March, where it would change its name to the Council of Four. This council had the final say in the most important matters. The Allies generally had representation on pretty much all the commissions which were created, to debate and advise on the major issues, from Poland to Greece to reparations. Some commissions and some committees were more important than others, of course, but the hope was that not only would this reduce the workload of the major allies, it would also reduce friction. The list of the main issues which required attention, that being the League of Nations, reparations, colonies, boundaries of old states and the creation of new ones, it was obviously not an exhaustive list, and it did not satisfy everyone. The French aim was to sort out Germany before the League of Nations, while Wilson wanted to do the opposite, and Lloyd George wanted to determine the future of colonies. There was a sense that matters were running away from them as well. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Finland, and much of the Baltic states had already staked their claims to independence by the time the Supreme War Council met on the 12th of January. The world wouldn't sit still while George Clemenceau decided whether to accept English as an official language of the conference or not, nor would it sit still while Wilson fought for Brazilian representation for some reason, nor would it sit still while Lloyd George tried to work out what a mandate was. It was imperative that more time was not wasted. Two months had already been passed without any decision being made, a fact which all present in Stephen Pichon's room were painfully aware of. It did not bode well that at every turn, opinions were expressed which delayed the proceedings, no matter how small or seemingly unimportant the issue. Nor did it help that questions which could have been settled before were brought out into the open. Could the order in which the burning issues be debated not have been settled before? Would it not have made sense to arrange the official languages of the conference before arriving rather than wasting so many words and time in person? These two months beforehand they really could have been spent more productively and then, when everyone met together, the week before the opening of the conference would have been more productive using its time as well. As it stood though, we saw that those present between the 12th and 17th of January ended up kicking many cans down the road. Excited, though many of the delegations were to gather at such a significant place, looking a little deeper, a morass of anxiety and contention existed, an added, often forgotten tension, was that between the urgent need to demobilise armies and send eager men home, and the pressing need to retain some kind of military power to pressure the central powers. While the major powers wanted to get on with things, they wanted to get on with things and have their own way. Each of the big three's leaders would have to answer for his failures. Wilson infamously had already been held accountable once, and he had lost Congress to the opposition, the equivalent of Lloyd George losing Parliament to Asquith's Liberals and the emerging Labour Party. George Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson and Lloyd George may have received something of a rude awakening from their experience of the previous days, but those new nations earnestly moving to Paris had not. These emerging nation-states, mostly in Eastern Europe, were determined to receive recognition for their rights and to receive help in making their mission possible. The challenges were as simple as they were severe. A great example is seen in the railway and supply problems faced by so many states. The fact that much of the continent had been ruled by empires for so long, each of whom had their own railway gauges, did not help a new state like Poland, whose leaders found that their cities, their Polish cities, were often not even connected together by railway track since there had been no reason for Russia or Germany to connect Polish cities it did not own by rail, only to connect its own cities to the Polish. Large sections of railway would have to be laid down then, and even where rail did exist, it would have to be brought into some kind of conformity with the rest of the country, a task easier said than done in Poland, where the railway network that they had now inherited had been split into three, the Austrian, German and Russian departments, for over a century The fractured railway system meant transportation of peoples and above all foodstuffs was slow or non-existent and that the economic framework of a country effectively ground to a halt. To rectify this, industrial work would have to be done to repair or in some cases start from scratch, but for that to happen, coal and coking facilities were needed to make the industry happen and the supply of coal depended on the very system it was meant to repair. Supplies of coal, such as that found, for example, in the Silesian region of Teschen became disputed epicenters of potential conflict as a result, and as if to reflect this legacy, Teschen remains today a city divided between Czech and Polish administrators, complete with the graffiti to match. If you've heard of Teschen it may well be because Lloyd George declared at one point, during the Paris Peace Conference, that he never had... An ill-advised statement, which the Prime Minister had used to demonstrate just how confusing the East was to most. Where Silesia met Upper Galicia, there existed Tetchen. but this disputed town was only a symptom of the legion of problems faced by states new and old alike. Its ethnographic makeup was contentious, but it was also too important to relinquish because of its invaluable resources. This situation was repeated many times, either along the Hungarian-Romanian border or the Yugoslav-Italian border or in deepest Africa, and the end result was always the same, reluctant compromise and embittered delegates, who were only momentarily satiated. These problems existed in the background, not yet discovered or understood, when all gathered on the 18th of January 1919. 100 years ago today, the leaders of the great powers believed they already had more than enough on their plates as it was. There was still no clear understanding about how these burning issues were to be addressed, how Wilson's dreams of a League of Nations and brand new world were to be achieved, or how a weary and concerned France was to be reassured. Harold Nicholson's entry into his diary on the 18th of January was short, but he does record that Clemenceau operated like a machine gun when dealing with the main concerns of the other delegations. The date had been chosen ostensibly so that the Italian premier, Vittorio Orlando, would be present, but the 18th of January was significant for another reason. It was another chance to rub salt in the wounds caused by years of Franco-German antagonism. The German Empire had been proclaimed, after all, in the Palace of Versailles on that date, the 18th of January, in 1871 and that date had also been selected in 1871 to coincide with the declaration of Prussia as a kingdom in 1701. Twisting the dagger even further into the German heart, French President Raymond Poincaré, who had been alive in 1871 and had seen German-Prussian soldiers march through his beloved Alsace-Lorraine, gave the opening address at 3pm 100 years ago. The German Empire... Poincaré boomed, born in injustice and consecrated by the theft of two French provinces, was vitiated from its origin and has ended in opprobrium. Present to experience the atmosphere of the moment was the enormous international press entourage which had uttered many protests in the days before. Contrary to their expectations, based on Wilson's expressed desire in the 14 points to see open covenants openly arrived at, The press had expected full and completely uncensored access to everything that was going down but instead they received daily summaries of the Supreme War Council's meetings approved by all before being sent out and from the 18th of January they would only be permitted to receive these and to attend the plenary conferences throughout the next six months where everyone in Paris pretty much would be entitled to gather together and there would only be six plenary conferences of these kind in total. The French president stood aside for Georges Clemenceau, who noted that it was time to elect a president of the conference. The French premier would himself be confirmed in this role. Shortly thereafter, the members of two important administrative committees, the Committee on Credentials and the Drafting Committee, were incepted. These were charged with handling the bureaucracy of the conference, a formidable mission as all would soon discover. Clemenceau then made a brief speech in which he stated that the programme of the conference had been laid down by Wilson, and thereafter he invited the delegates of all the powers to submit memoranda on the three questions which had been placed upon the order of the day. These three questions had been debated extensively in the previous week, and they contained something for everyone. Something on the responsibility of the authors of the war, the penalty for the crimes committed during the war, both of which appeased the French, and international legislation on labour, which pleased Lloyd George. Clemenceau then made a show of inviting the powers with special interests, so essentially all the Allied powers to declared war or opened hostilities of some kind with Germany, to submit memoranda on all questions, them being territorial, financial or economic, which particularly interested them. It was here that Clemenceau channelled his inner machine gun, as Harold Nicholson recorded, and parried much of what he didn't want to hear from the smaller nations present. The first plenary meeting of the Paris Peace Conference wrapped up after less than two hours in session at 4.45pm. The very small number of plenary meetings over the next six months, in other words, the rare occasions when all of the delegates of the invited powers were present, together with the press, in the same room, ensured that the plenary meetings rarely decided anything of importance. It was an opportunity to oppose unfair decisions, to register protests, and to enlighten what one hoped was an interested and sympathetic audience as to your nation's plight. Individuals who had travelled thousands of miles would here have sometimes fewer than 30 minutes to express their position and make their case. In the months that followed, one could sometimes see Clemenceau doze off or Wilson's earnestness turn to impatience. The initial desire to make the conference a platform for smaller nations, it was a genuine one, but as Preston Slosson explained, it was inevitable that the greater powers would tower over the proceedings. Slosson wrote, The greater part of the conference was devoted to efforts, by means of threats or persuasion, to reduce the European chaos to some semblance of order. Work on the treaties occupied its leisure moments. While the Supreme Council was popularly supposed to be discussing such questions as where shall this frontier be drawn, or how much indemnity shall we demand? It was usually discussing such questions as, how can we stop the fighting in eastern Galicia? How can we get the German army out of Latvia without letting in the Bolsheviks? How far dare we go in coercing Romania to evacuate Budapest? Shall we sanction the landing of Greek troops in Asia Minor? With respect to the handling of everyday problems, not directly related to the making of treaties, the conference merely confirmed the wartime cooperation of the Allied and associated powers. In other words, as the historian Eric Goldstein put it, The opening weeks of the conference were no more than the Indian summer of the wartime alliance before the conflicting aspirations of its members would begin to drive them apart. The very presence of the Supreme War Council was a reminder of where the Allies had come from and how important their military cooperation had been for ensuring victory. But once the conference opened on this day a hundred years ago, it could be assumed that the smaller powers would get a say. Like I said, this was the genuine intention of the five powers, or at least of Woodrow Wilson, George Clemenceau and Lloyd George. These men would not have spent so long arguing about representation for the delegations if they didn't care about their opinions. The problem, of course, was that they spent too long arguing about the numbers, and wasted valuable time, which in the end meant little, because the full conference, with all of its members, assembled only six times over the next six months. Considering the fact that everyone in Paris only really got together six times before the Treaty of Versailles was actually signed, it is little wonder that when we think about the Treaty of Versailles or the Paris Peace Conference, our minds are filled with images of the Big Three, These men had set up the apparatus, the Supreme Council or Council of Ten, for the express purpose of preserving their influence and ensuring they possessed the means to make decisions on the most pressing of matters. Perhaps they did not expect to dominate the preceding months so completely, or for those plenary conferences and commissions to lose out as a result. With the best of intentions, so many institutions, commissions and checks and balances had been set up to ensure that all would have a fair shake. Yet by creating these bodies, the Allies made more work for themselves and produced vast amounts of paperwork which they could never really digest. So they gradually worked around this problem by getting others to read and condense the reports for them, while increasing amounts of time were spent hashing out the major issues together. Because of this gradual transition, which was never really announced over any loudspeaker phones or anything, from ideological to cynical, from sluggish to speedy, from well-intentioned to impatient, the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles were both, at the end of the day, the product of three men. If they didn't realise this by the 18th of January 1919, then matters were soon to make this fact very clear indeed they held all the cards, because they had the final say on what was or was not legitimate, based upon their military preponderant positions and the influence they had within the world. This of course didn't mean that they were always able to use these cards, because while the acute dangers of revolution, disease and starvation made themselves felt, the less obvious danger of apathy also reared its head. It was apathy for leniency, apathy for a renewal of the war, apathy for making war on states in unknown portions of the continent that disobeyed their orders. Consequently, the dominant great powers faced a dilemma which reached down to the heart of the problem. They were more powerful collectively than any other bloc, yet the will to make use of this power was lacking, and as the months ticked by, this power was reduced, and the collective cooperation of the Allies was undermined. Under these circumstances, how could the Big Three achieve much of anything? The World was about to find out. Amidst the public well wishes and private consternation, this conference had to go ahead. Now that it was online, so to speak, it was time for those at the top of the pyramid to look down on what they had made and proceed as best as they could. The 20th of January 1919 was to be the first day of the rest of their lives, but it did not take long at all for ticking time bombs to present themselves. Some of these bombs, indeed, were destined to explode painfully close to home.